Let's just bow in prayer and let's just take some moment of silence before we open up the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, two things. First of all, we want to recognize your presence. We know you're real. God, we know you exist. And Father, we are so grateful that you are a good God. You love us. You you know everything about us. And so, Father, we run to you and we just lay our prayer requests at your feet. Father, I do pray for my mom right now. Will you comfort her? Please, rescue my sister. Secondly, I pray for Wanda. Wanda has been a faithful, faithful wife to Herb. She's been by his bedside. She's been caring for him, him, and I know, God, in some ways she's relieved, but also exhausted. I pray that you'd provide for what she needs. And then finally, I just ask that you open up your precious word. Today, this passage is very familiar with most of us, and that's a problem. Because when we're familiar with something, we tend to neglect it. And I pray that we wouldn't do that. And we love you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If we could be honest about one thing, it's this. I think in the Christian life, there is nothing more neglected than prayer. This is a large-scale problem because in the Christian life, there is nothing more important than prayer. I'll say that again. I don't think there's anything more neglected in prayer, but I don't think there's anything more important than prayer. And I think because of that, for many of us, our Christian lives, our walk with God, aren't what they should be. And so today, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about prayer in a rather open, more conversational way. My goal, I have one goal. I want to make prayer more compelling to you. That's really my goal this morning. I want to move you one notch up in your prayer life, or really simply I want to offer you help, some insights. To do that, we're going to look at Luke chapter 10, or chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. So if you can pray there, we're going to take Jesus' model. It's not meant to be a it's not meant to be a chant. It's not meant to be where a prayer where I say it, if I can say it ten times in a row, that means it must be more valid. It's, it's a model. It's a blueprint for how to approach God. And we often call it the Lord's Prayer. But let's start in uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Begins by saying, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. We don't know where he's praying, but when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord... Teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. If you notice, it's not what you normally know. Matthew is the larger extent, but I think Luke had very specific reasons why he did it this way. But let's keep reading verse 5. And he said to them, 
Which of you as a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything, I tell you. Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the passage, and again, my, what I said earlier, I do not want to heap more guilt on you because I already know the untold burden we carry when it comes to prayer. Some of us are very consistent and good at prayer, but honestly, it's few. I know I myself always, I always feel guilty, and I don't want to make you feel more guilty. I simply want us to pray, to see it in a new light. It's interesting, I find in this section, right from the get-go, the disciples are making a very sincere request. They ask right away, Lord, teach us to pray. There's an, we can just infer from this that the disciples, even themselves, find that prayer does not come naturally. So let's just make that a, prayer doesn't come naturally. Even disciples admit that. They need to be taught. There's an assumption prayer should just come flowing off of our lips, but even the disciples are saying, Lord, will you teach us? I mean, if you think about it, from a very uh, purely mechanical uh, standpoint, Prayer is speaking words to an invisible God who doesn't talk back. That's very awkward. Speaking words to an invisible God who really doesn't instantly talk back. How do I know if he even heard me? My wife gets mad at me if she talks to me and I don't respond. But God doesn't respond to us. And so after I ask God for something, I usually hear nothing, to be honest with you. I don't really know even if he heard what I said. So how do you do this? And how do you keep doing this? Knowing that maybe you never will hear back on some of your requests. How do you do it? In fact, I can't tell you the number of times I've asked people to pray and they'll sheepishly say, I'm not good at it. I'm just not good at it. I don't know what to say. Or no thanks. Uh, no, no thanks. I have somebody else pray. Because let's face it, for most of us, praying is not easy, especially in public. It's just not, if we'd be honest. And what I find intriguing about this passage, when they ask, Lord, teach us to pray, Jesus doesn't scold them. 
often he says, oh, ye of little faith. Here he says, all right, he's actually eager to teach because he wants us to pray. It's a lot different than how he responded to Martha in the previous passage. Remember last week we talked about Mary and Martha, and he kind of scolded her. And the reason I bring this up, as we were talking last week in our home fellowship group, we were discussing the story of Mary and Martha, last week's sermon. And Julie Lieberman said something that was incredibly insightful in our home fellowship group. She said, I pray just like Martha. I said, what do you mean, Julie? She goes, well, if you look at it, Martha goes up to the Lord, and she's telling him to do something for somebody else and make somebody else do something. She says, I pray like that all the time. And I said, oh boy, so do I. I was saying, you know, and you'll often hear pastors say this, when a pastor preaches, how many times are you thinking about, wow, that person needed that? You know, I mean, you've heard that a hundred times. But in the same way, don't we pray like that? Lord, will you rescue my son and make sure he gets saved? Lord, will you get some people to do this job? Everybody's lazy. That's kind of Martha's prayer. How many of our prayers are for God to get somebody to do our bidding for us? So I would say, in a way, Martha is not the example of prayer, but often that's how we pray. There is another example I want to offer up to you. I, it was actually, Jared, I got this from that book, Prayer, by Olin Halsby, and he says, the model of prayer is Mary, Jesus' mother, at the wedding of Cana. If you remember, this is John chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. But in John chapter 2, they're having a wedding. And the host ran out of wine. And it was a what I would call a societal faux pas. You don't do that. Mary's nervous. So she goes up to her son and says, Jesus, uh, they ran out of wine. And he says, what's that have to do with me? Woman, he says, what, what does that have to do with me? But basically, Mary goes to the disciples and she says, just do whatever he tells you to do. And he uses this as an example for prayer because, number one, Mary doesn't have the answer. She's helpless. She doesn't know what to do, but she knows where to go to find her answer, and she's willing to let him decide on his timetable when it's going to be answered. Now that's a model for prayer, where prayer is helplessness. Do whatever he tells you to do. Instead of demanding God, to meet our requests our way, we need to be willing to submit to his will, to answer in his way. It's the essence of prayer. And so in teaching Luke, I want to take that perspective that we're going to him to help us on his time frame. And as we do that, I think there's three, to me, from this passage, three very simple observations I want to give to you. I don't want to make it hard, but I want you to hold on to these suggestions in prayer so prayer I, I just want to take away the mystery away from prayer or the heaviness see because I grew up where you prayed this with beads with a so sober our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us lead us not into temptation deliver us from evil for thine is kingdom power and glory yours now and forever and then I do that that's not the intent. So what is the intent? I'm going to give you three observations. Observation number one, what I find from really meditating on this, reading about it, but just in my own life. Number one, Luke, in this passage, 
intentionally wants us to see prayer as an intimate exchange with a good father. Prayer is an intimate exchange, discussion with a good dad. Look how this prayer in Luke's rendition begins. He begins by saying, Father, not our Father, but Father. One commentator said the way Luke records Jesus' model of prayer is very purposeful. First and foremost, God wants us to address God directly and intimately. It has the same idea of in Romans 8.15, when the Holy Spirit's alive in you, you cry, Abba, Father. The idea, it's, it's a cry of a child to his father. In fact, it's not meant to be sung like the high churches do. I, when I was an altar boy, Jared and I were talking about, it's not meant to be, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Oh, isn't that beautiful? That's not the intent. Do you talk to your dad like that? Dear Dad, could I have some dinner? I am hungry. He'd go, Chris, no, you're, you're crazy. That's what you are. And I think what we've done is we, I think we, prayer by bringing a high church has distanced us from a real intimacy with a God that I can just talk to. Abba means Dad. Dad. I need you. He's a good father. And he wants us to address him as such. To prove this point, Jesus gives a little parable in verses 11 through 13. And it helps the listener visualize this principle. Jesus is asking his disciples in verse 11 through 13 a question. He says, what father among you, if his son asks, for a fish so the son's hungry wants some dinner he asks for a fish and a dad gives him a snake that's weird or this it even gets weirder or if you know the son's still kind of hungry he asks for an egg and he gives him a scorpion I it's kind of like a Halloween dinner Son, you want a good dinner of, uh, you know, fish and eggs? How about snake and scorpion? Like that? <laughs> like what? That's crazy. That's Jesus' point. That's crazy. And then he says this, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts, meaning if you who are evil recognize that's crazy, I would never do that for my kids. In fact, when my kids ask for something, I try to meet their needs. And he says, inside, there still is darkness in you, and you still want to meet your kids' needs. It's in you. Then, then he says, how, then, how much more then will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit who asks him? In other words, if you have a deep desire to meet your child's need, whether they're hungry, whether they want like a new pair of clothes or something, you want to get that for them, and you are rather selfish, God's, God has not one taint of selfishness in him. Don't you think he'll answer your prayers? 
If a flawed human is quick to respond with good intention, just think how a perfect God wants to respond. He has no evil in his whole, whole being. So when you ask, why do you worry if he's going to care for you? He cares for you. You know, I'll be honest with you. One of the statements that really drives me crazy because I think it goes against this, a lot of people will say it like this, don't ever ask for patience. I don't like that. Here's the reason why. If you, the way you're asking that, you are kind of hinting, God will come and get you. Why can't you ask for patience? Won't God help you in a good way? No, he's going to set up a situation where I'm going to be dying and I just have to... No, God loves you. God is not going to pull out the, the rug from your feet or another shoe's going to drop or, boy, I got a good day today and I'm going to have a bad day tomorrow. I used to tell you I used to be a real superstitious kid. I remember I loved to play baseball so much. I can remember if it was a sunny day, the day before, I knew the next day was going to be a rainy day. And I would, I would go outside, lived on railroad tracks, I could look way down the horizon. I would just dread the dark clouds coming in because I knew the game would be canceled. Because I thought, you know, I'm so, I was superstitious. Man, I can't have two good days in a row. I think sometimes we treat God with that same superstition. As if he gives me something good, he's got to backslap me the next day. He's a good father. Boy, he loves you. He, yes, that's right. Nora, way to go. I love that. I wish we had that harder. Yes, he's a good father. If I can only drill one thing into you, it's that. He's a good father. I was writing this, just start jotting this down. There's a teaching that many people don't trust God because they had bad dads. If you had a bad dad, just listen for a second. Most people who ever had a bad father are resentful of their father precisely because they know he was not a good father when he should have been. Where did you get that image that a, good, a father must be good? I believe you have that image because God planted in you a desire for a good father. So when your human father misses the mark, you have anger because you know you didn't get really the design that's been longed in you. But God also gave you that image because he wants to meet that image. He is a good father. And instead of saying you can never see God as a good father because your dad was bad, no, you've been longing for a good father because he's been the one that he, he wants you to have. I, I might have told you this a hundred times. I remember my dad was having the hardest time in the world. It was hard for him. And I remember I had to go to dad for my dad. I had to go to my dad for my dad. And when I went to my dad for my dad, he finally became my dad. And I could finally let go of having all these expectations of my earthly dad because I have a real dad. That is so powerful to me. I, and I'm just telling you, you've got to chew through that. Second observation, observation number two. You will only pray for what you really want. That's just basic human behavior. We are passionate about what we want. So, I would say this. I believe prayer is the cry of want. And I am convinced, and I have found this true in my life, the lack of 
prayer in our lives is more a result of being rich, lazy, Americans, than it is a lack of understanding about what prayer means. When we are content, when we are stuffed to the gills with food, when we have a hundred different clothes, we have all kind of things to do, we rarely pray because we're busy. We don't pray because we don't think we need right now. But when we need, I find those people who really are in need and want, pray. And this is a tough one. So what if I do have life going well? Well, I'll talk about that in a second. But let me give, just give you an example of what I mean by this want. First of all, Jesus gives us a parable. I'll give you a personal illustration. And then I'll tell you the two things I think he wants us to want. And they're kind of mind-blowing to me. So I'll give you Jesus' illustration, which we find in verses 5 through 8. I'll give you a personal parable, and then I'll tell you what he wants. Verse 5, and he said to them, he's talking to his disciples, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. So here's this, he's setting up an illustration. At that day, they would live in small villages. They weren't that rich. The disciples were basically an agricultural community that lived close to each other, little houses. And they were also a people of hospitality. So so he said when a a friend has a friend come in from out of town, he knows he's got to be hospitable to him, but he has nothing in the cupboard. He goes next door and asks his friend, hey, do you have three loaves of bread so I can help him out? Well, this guy says, well, when you go over, let's imagine he's in bed. And he says, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. So it's almost like they're having a conversation through the window. Everybody in the house is sleeping. He's saying, hey, can you give me three loaves of bread? He goes, get out of here. He goes, hey, I need three loaves of bread. He goes, I'm not right. You're going to wake the kids up. Hey. And he says, he says here, um, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. There's some commentators who disagree on this. Jesus is kind of bringing up, and some, some commentators saying, this is, ah, uh, this isn't, you know, the listener is saying, well, this wouldn't happen because when you have a neighbor come in town, everybody will take care of him. So the guy would have got up instantly, but... Most commentators say, well, he's just painting a picture. He's saying the reason the guy gets up is because of that guy's persistence. He won't stop asking, and he just wants to shut him up. So you could say it like this. The word impudence in this passage means, the the definition means shameless persistence. Shameless, irritating persistence. So this man wants something so much He is willing to wake up his neighbor to get it. The neighbor kept knocking, so the man got up. But the man would understand the shame and not being hospitable. He'd probably do it. But in other words, he's saying God will respond to our persistence in the same way he wants us to. And he's even flattered by it. Because when we persistently come to him, It's stating in a very, very, very obvious way we believe God exists and we believe he can answer our needs and that flatters God. He loves that. Even if it's shameless persistence. 
When you want something and you go after God to get it, he wants to answer that. I remember, and just this is a picture of you only pray for what you really want. When I was in fifth grade, we went to, my, my sister and I, we're both in the same grade, we went to a private school. And at that year, that's when the students were able to try out instruments. I used the story before. You probably remember this story, Rhonda. But my sister wanted to try out instruments. So the first one she tried out was a tuba. She tried a tuba. And you had to rent it, a rental fee at that time, $10 rental fee. Didn't sound like, a much, like much, but my dad said, Steph, you want to do that tuba? She goes, yeah, Dad, I want to do the tuba. She took it home, tried it for a week, and said, Dad, I don't like the tuba. I want to try the saxophone. My dad said, Steph, that's another $10 rental fee. I want to try the saxophone. She brought it home. She didn't like that. So she came back and she said, Dad, I want to try the flute. He goes, that's it. No, enough of that. No, no more. At the same time, it was about the same time of year, I said, Dad, I was in the sports store and I saw a pair of shoulder pads. I want a pair of shoulder pads. And my dad already was dealing with my sister. He said, no, I'm not giving you an early allowance. You cannot have those shoulder pads. I said, Dad, I want those shoulder pads. He goes, no. The next week, I said, Dad, can I get an early allowance? I want those shoulder pads. He said, no, I'm not giving you an early allowance. The third week, I came by. I said, Dad, can I get those shoulder pads? I just want an early allowance. Can I have an early allowance? He said, all right, I'll give you an early allowance, but that's going to take up the next four months of allowances for those shoulder pads. I said, I don't care. I want those pads. He goes, all right. We went to the store. He bought me those shoulder pads. I am telling you, I slept in those shoulder pads. I loved those shoulder I wore those shoulder pads everywhere. My dad got so sick of those shoulder pads, but he knew I wanted them. To me, sometimes we pray, but we really don't want. And God wants to see, do you want what you're asking for? Are you willing to be shamelessly persistent, or do you just give up? I think some of that shameless persistence makes me even own the prayer request more than I would have if I didn't. So what does he want us to want? That's the question. This is where it gets strange. He says it in right in verse 2. He wants us to want two things. He wants us to want his name to be hallowed. He wants us to want God's name to be great. Morris, the commentator, writes, he wants us to want that God shall be God and man shall not whittle down God to a manageable size and shape. He wants God to be the incredible God that he is in our eyes and in the eyes of those people that we're we're with. Do you want God's name to be glorified? I had to ask that to myself because I Sometimes I'm nervous when I talk to people about God. I don't want them to think I'm kind of a Christian nerd, but I want God, I do, I want God to be seen as great in my life and my kids' life and my family's life and my church's life. I want God's name to be great. And if I really want God's name to be great, I prove it by my prayer. I want it. Even when we do our prayer times, Jared, I think the people that really want God's name to be glorified here come. I just think they do. It's not to put guilt on anybody else, but the one quality I would say about the people that come to that prayer group, they want God to do something here. They want that. But the second thing I would say is what he wants is this is amazing. 
He wants us to want his kingdom to come. His rule over the hearts of men and women, over the hearts of this world. He wants his rule to come. I'll tell you what, after this political season, I've never wanted it more. I'm telling you. I'll be honest with you, this election is making me sick. It's dividing friends. It's corroding the language of our culture. It's hurting all of us. It's been a bad thing for us. Regardless of what side you're on, it's been a bad thing. I want a place where my leader is good, where my leader is kind and right and noble and beautiful. I want sin to be eradicated. That's what's going to happen when his kingdom comes. Sin will be eradicated. Family is no longer torn apart. I'm tired of death. Can't stand being in the presence of somebody who's hurting. His kingdom. Could you imagine when it comes? People will no longer talk bad behind each other's back. People will tell only the truth to each other. I want his kingdom to come. And I think in a small way, he's saying that can happen now. Do you want that in your home, in your life? Pray. Or are you okay with a dirty world? Are you okay with that? I can say that. I can say I want his name to be great. I can say I want his kingdom to come, but if I don't pray about it, I'm not sure I really want it. Because prayer is the believer's expression of want. That's point number two. Point number three. He and this is the neatest one, I think. He promises to outfit you as you live as servant to the king, to do his bidding. So he promises to outfit you. That means to give you what you need, to equip you. As you live, as I live my life, serving him. So if I'm serving him, he will equip me. If I'm living my life to serve him and accomplish his ends, to see his glory... He promises to give me what I need in order to get there. If I join the army, if I join the army, they will get me what I need to accomplish my mission. If I am assigned a dangerous mission, will they not give me what I need to accomplish that mission? It's not like Stalingrad. There, there was a battle of Stalingrad where Germany fought Russia. And Russia, they didn't have enough arms. And so what they did is every other man they would send into the battle with a gun. One guy would get a gun, the other guy wouldn't. And you'd say, well, how do you fight a battle like that? Well, you pick up the gun when the other guy dies. That's how they fought that battle. Do you think that's the way God equips us? If he's asking you to do something, don't you think he will give you what you need? I want you to go to Matthew. This is, to me, an amazing passage. This is, this is one of those passages when I'm really low, when I'm really down, I go to it. It is a jewel. Matthew 6. But I need to show you how it's, how it's set up. You've got to see how it's set up. It's set up in verse 24, but often people just begin in verse 25 because there's, you know, this, the typesetters put in, you know, little divisions that they thought would be helpful. But and I think in this case it's not that helpful. Because look, if you look at verse 24, 
Jesus says to disciples, no one can serve two masters. So in other words, we serve somebody. This, this illusion that we're independent and free is not true. So we're going to serve this one or this one. So there's two masters we can serve. And he, whoever he serves, he'll hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he says, here's the two servants. Here's who you serve. God or money. In really the original Greek, it's mammon. And mammon can represent money, pleasure, basically self. What I want when I want it. So you can serve God or money. So he says, then the next part, he's going, to, he's going to assume I choose God. Watch what happens when I choose God. Verse 25. Therefore, I tell you. See, therefore means it's correlating to the verse before. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. What you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is life not more than food and a body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. So he's saying, don't worry about it. Why? Um... Verse 31, don't be anxious because, verse 32, your heavenly Father knows you need them. So if I serve God, he knows what I need, so he'll give me what I need in order to serve him. If I'm going to be sent out on a mission, don't you think the person who sent me out on a mission will give, give me what I need? So he, he asks us to live this life. I didn't choose to be born. I didn't choose to be born here. He knows that. He'll give me what I need. And so if we go back to Luke, the idea is picked up. Go back to Luke. Verse 32, or I'm sorry, verse um, 9 and 10. So Jesus says, I tell you, this is Luke 11, 9, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Why will it be given to you? Because he knows you need it. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. If you notice, you go back up to the prayer. It's verse 3. It's, that's in reference to our daily bread, our daily needs. He'll give us what we need. He will give us both physical needs, our daily bread. He will give us spiritual forgiveness. We need forgiveness for our sins. We need to have a right relationship with God. He wants us to be in close communion with him as Father, and so he gives us the ability to forgive. And a way that you can tell he received forgiveness is you forgive others. And then we also need him to, if he's sending us on mission, to keep us out of temptation, to keep us out from being barraged and destroyed. And chewed up. Those are requests. What do you need today? What do you need? What do you need? Maybe you need money. Tell, tell them. I'm sure a lot of you do. He answers that prayer. You, some of you may need, some of you may need to have what I would call the, the thing that makes a lot of people's hands hang limp. Guilt. You need to be forgiven. And some of you need love for other people. Ask him. Seek him. Knock. So the three things are basically, number one, 
He wants you to have an intimate relationship. He's a good father. Number two, number two, not only is he a good father, but if you persistently go to the father because you want his will, he'll, he'll answer, which, which really the third thing is he'll outfit you. Look how this ends, though. This is a fascinating way to go because normally he's saying, ask, seek, and find. And so if we ask for our daily bread and temptation, you know, look at, though, how he's the, the, he, he kind of ups the ante. Verse 13, if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give you the greatest gift of all, the Holy Spirit? That to me is somewhat, I don't know if we know how great the Holy Spirit is. There's an, an, there's an intangible, I, when it comes to understanding the Holy Spirit, there's a fuzziness to understand the Holy Spirit. Here's, I've been thinking about how do I illustrate for you who the Holy Spirit is? And this, is the, this illustration hit me one day. It's actually, Ginger, you like this movie. It's The Count of Monte Cristo. Many of you may have seen The Count of Monte Cristo or read the book. I've done both, both. I like the movie a lot better. But I'll just give, I won't tell you the guy's name because I, Ginger, you remember that guy's name? Does anybody remember the name of that guy? Do you, Doug? you remember that guy's name? Any, it doesn't matter. Here's the story. This guy is, he's tried for a crime he did not commit. He didn't commit a crime. So he's, John, uh, do you know Mike, the guy's name? Yeah, Dante. Edmund Dantes. Edmund Dantes is tried and found guilty for a crime he didn't commit. So he's put into a terrible prison, like as bad as you can think. It's a cavernous prison in this island on the, in the French, uh, out in the ocean there. I don't know where he is, but it's bad. It's, it's one, of those, one of those prisons where the, it's so humid, it, it drips, you know. And it's, he's in, he gets gruel through the bottom of his door. It's bad. One day as he's sitting in this prison all alone, he's marking his days on the wall, this head pops up through the middle of his floor, and it's this old guy. He's been trying to dig a hole, a tunnel out. And this guy starts becoming his best friend. But this guy is a brilliant mathematician. He's a brilliant English major. He's brilliant at warfare. He's brilliant. And so Edmund Dantes, for 14 years, spends every day with this guy. And Edmund Dantes goes into the prison as an ignoramus, and he spends every day with this guy, and he learns how to fight. He learns mathematics. He learns how to read. He learns economics. He learns everything because he spends every day with this guy. And then after the 14 years, Edmund Dantes is a completely different person, brilliant, majestic, noble. To me, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, according to 1 John, it says we have been anointed by him. We now know truth. We now understand the heart and the mind and the life of God. We now can be ruled by his kingdom. And we can be ruled every single day. Where we're right in line with his will. To me, we get his power. We get his insight. We get his emotion. We get his taste for things. It's the greatest gift you can ever have. The question is, are you willing to embrace that gift and use the gift? Or do you just want your 
selfish life. And what's interesting, the more selfish you become, the less you pray. So those are my observations. And to end this, I'd invite you to stand, and we're just going to pray this together. But pray it. I don't want it to be rote. I want you to pray it slowly, word by word. It's Luke's prayer, the Lord's prayer. And I will read in, uh, I will read and he said to them, and after I say, and he said to them, we're going to, um, when, he, when you pray, say, and right after I say, say, let's just go slow and let this be the prayer of our heart. So Lord, hear our prayer. Here we go. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation and everybody said